You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 104. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention today. If you are at all interested and would like to support the podcast, you can go to Anchor FM and click the support button. Otherwise, I have hoodies and stickers available for purchase. Uh, The cost of the hoodie is $50, and I cover the costs of mailing. So you can DM me about that or send me an email through the website, Anchor FM, Wear Priest Podcast. Otherwise, the response to my last episode on Jung caught me by surprise. I thought that that was something that I was interested in and maybe a few other people. But judging from your responses, you tagged me on social media. For those of you who made some memes, thank you. Those were awesome. I posted them to my Instagram account. If you would like to contribute and broaden the community of this podcast, you are free to meme the podcast and meme the conversations that we have with different authors on this podcast. Use your imagination, have fun with it, and then post and tag me on social media. But... The response then to the Jung episode was encouraging. And as a consequence, there's something that I've been kicking around for a while now because of my friendship with Friedrich Nietzsche, which is that I wanted to dive into what Nietzsche and Jung collectively had to say about heroes and the myth of the hero, specifically the changeover in modernity. What do I mean by that? In pre-modern Western society, the myth of the hero helped establish an individual's moral foundation and also served to improve society. That was the primary function of myth, especially the heroic myth. But since the Industrial Revolution, since the Enlightenment, especially in the West in the 20th century, these pre-modern myths have come under increasing attack. So that rather than focus on the hero and what is both heroic about the individual and also their flaws which lead to their ultimate downfall and or redemption, how they overcame their flaws, their failings, in order to succeed, to become heroes, what we call the hero's journey, Instead, what we do is we deconstruct our heroes, especially our pre-modern mythological heroes, and we pile on them all of the guilt of the world in order to diminish them, dismiss them, and even demonize them. So we see this today with how Hollywood has chosen to deconstruct and reconfigure pre-modern myths. Why does Hollywood do this? Many people wonder aloud. Many people critique it. Many people ask, how can they possibly maintain this kind of a business model when these movies which attack our beloved myths and heroes don't succeed at the box office? Why do they keep doing this? Well, in my opinion, they must do this. Hollywood must attack and deconstruct and vilify pre-modern heroes and myths. Because as I said, the primary function of those was to inculcate morality and improve society. So if you want to 
reformulate, move all the deck chairs around on the Titanic, what do you need to do? Well, you need to convince people that the way things were set up before is wrong. And not only wrong, but destructive to society and to the individual. So Hollywood attacks these myths, attacks these heroes, deconstructs them, recasts them in order to establish a beachhead for a new kind of morality, a new kind of mythos. And so, of course, then, that is going to be met with resistance, sometimes violently. It's going to create conflict because you are attempting to overthrow time-tested, revered tropes. And so I thought maybe the best way to do this then, to have this conversation, is to go to two men I trust to assess the situation. And that's Nietzsche and Jung because they wrote a lot about pre-modern myths and modern myths. They wrote about the hero and what happened to the hero at the advent of modernity with Nietzsche and then in the 20th century with Jung. So with that being said then, we're going to dive into this and I'm going to do my best to interpret both Friedrich Nietzsche and Carl Jung for myself and you. And uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. I only laugh because I never thought that I would say out loud, I'm going to try to unpack and interpret Friedrich Nietzsche and Carl Jung in an hour to an hour and a half long podcast. So we can call that willful naivety or hubris on my part, but we'll see how it goes. So Nietzsche, in his writing on the birth of tragedy, he writes, here we have our present age, bent on the extermination of myth. There, he says it. Modernity. What is, it, what is the program of modernity? To exterminate myth. What kind of myth? The pre-modern myth. The pre-industrial society myth. The pre-scientific method myth. In our present age, we are bent on the extermination of myth. Man today, stripped of myth, stands famished among all his pasts and must dig frantically for roots. Exactly. What do you see with Hollywood productions, both movie and TV? We see people famished, looking back at the past, finding nothing that will sustain them, rejecting sustenance. And therefore, they're digging frantically for roots. And yet, those roots produce no trees, and those trees produce no fruits that they want to eat from. So instead of respecting those who planted those trees, those who nurtured and cultivated those trees. Instead, they seek to chop those trees down. But then they seek to try and draw fruit from a stump. They can't replant new trees. They can't produce new fruit. Why? Because their entire program is the extermination of the forest. Extermination of the myth. So how can you plant trees that will produce new myths when your whole program in the first place is the extermination of the myth. And so they dig frantically for roots, but they find none. None that will bear fruit. That's our present age, according to Nietzsche. That's the birth of tragedy, according to him. It is a tragedy that modern men and women want to exterminate what gives our life 
meaning, what helps explain life, the universe, and everything to us. Because, of course, if we cut down that forest, which provides us with meaning and identity and a sense of place and time, what's left? What do we draw on then for our identity and meaning? Where do we go to look for answers to the questions about life, the universe, and everything? How do we know where we stand in relation to the past and the future? When we have no myths, we have no heroes. And so today, just like in Nietzsche's day, just like in Carl Jung's day, we live at a time when science and technology have made great progress in regards to the material world. Sickness and suffering has been, what do you want to say, alleviated remarkably. But can the same be said about our psychological health and our emotional well-being? Sure, physical illness and diseases have been curtailed to a large degree, thanks to the scientific method, thanks to technological innovation. But why then is the birth rate 50% lower than it was even 20 years ago? Why are more than half of all marriages ending in divorce within the first three to five years? Why is suicide rates, drug abuse rates, why have they escalated? Why have they skyrocketed over 400% in the last two years? We seem to be able to treat the body medically, technologically, but as far as the psychology and the emotional side of things, as far as the soul of each individual person goes, we seem to completely ignore that or treat it as if it's something that can simply be medicated and brought under control. So yes, science and technology have prolonged our lives. We now live longer. We now enjoy better physical health and well-being if that's what we choose to pursue. Diseases have been eradicated, many of them. And yet, we are more depressed and spiritually impoverished than ever. We are born and we will die. And everything that we know will turn to dust. So what now? What now? What's our legacy? What, what are we doing here? Why are we doing it? And that's why I wanted to talk about this today. It's not enough to teach technique, how to defend a teep in Muay Thai, how to fight off a rear naked choke in jiu-jitsu. That's just the physical manifestation of this technical principle. We also have to address the mindset of the martial artist. We have to talk about the emotional well-being of the martial artist because these are just as important, if not more important, to the long-term success of the study of martial arts for each individual martial artist. One can be exceptionally talented at executing technique and yet lack the mental and emotional facilities to hold it together in a fight or even in the gym when put under stress. It's not enough to just be technically proficient as a mixed martial artist. You also must learn about your own mind and how you think, your presuppositions, your prejudices, 
the types of things that cause you to become enraged, the type of things that cause you to become depressed and, and despondent, the types of things that get you excited and motivated, but also then emotionally. You have to become a scholar, a technician of your emotions to recognize before they come flooding out of you, why do I feel this way? Why is this emotion welling up inside of me? Why am I becoming angry? Why am I becoming frustrated? Why do I feel like giving up? Why am I so happy to be here? Again, these are just as important, if not more important, than the physical aspect of martial arts. So it's not enough to just say, hey, let's go out there and get in a fight. Get in a fight with who? And get in a fight for what reason? Why are we fighting these people? So the reason then that I address Nietzsche and Jung today and ask them this question about myth and the hero and modernity is, it's not enough for us who embrace a warrior ethos to simply be proficient at fighting, at preparedness, at self-defense, in my opinion. We also must take very seriously the why, the mental, the spiritual, the emotional aspect of being a warrior, of embracing this ethos, of being a fighter, no matter what that means for you in your life. So I think we need to address why it's why society is the way it is, especially in the West, why suicide rates are so high, why drug addiction and alcohol abuse is so high, why divorce rates are so high, why the birth rate is plummeting. It's not because of scientific or technological innovation. It's not because in the United States our life is so hard. It's because there's something happening inside each of us that threatens to destroy us and turn us into shells, empty suits, nothing. And so it's not enough, in my opinion, to simply dwell on the facts, to look at science and technology over the last 100 years, and say, but look at all the benefits we have reaped from science and technology. I don't think that's enough. Because look at social media, look at smartphones and tablets and laptops, what has it done for us positively and negatively? And do the pros outweigh the cons? Nowadays, I'm more and more convinced that the cons outweigh the pros when it comes to social media and technology. We are so quickly swayed. Our minds are so quickly changed. We're so quickly distracted. And memory hold. For two years, the dark gods of the state told us, do this without any actual legal authority. And we just did it. I was telling a friend this morning, Congress just voted to make daylight savings time permanent. They actually legislated time. They decided time, an arbitrary division within the year, spring forward, fall back. It's permanent. Why? Does it serve any actual purpose? No. And yet we all go along with it. Why? We don't have to. We can reject it. It would require us to get together, to be united in our opposition to something as juvenile and obtuse as daylight savings time, but something as simple as we're going to change our clocks twice a year. Why? Because these people over here said so. Well, what gives them the authority to say that? And why do we need to do what they tell us? No one I know likes daylight savings time. And yet no one I know is willing to say, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'll be an hour ahead 
or an hour behind the rest of my community for half the year. I don't care. I'm not doing it. I mean, obviously, that would just create chaos at your job or at school or at church. But nobody ever just stands up and says, you know what? Let's ignore daylight savings time as a congregation or as a community or as a school or as a business. Let's ignore it. It's arbitrary. It's capricious. It serves no actual purpose. But we can't even do that. We can't even get together and say, let's ignore that and just go on with our lives. So when the government says, set your clocks back, we just do it without even questioning it. When the government says, stay home, we stay home. When they say, put a a diaper on your face, we do it. When they say that taxing us more and more all the time is necessary and yet send billions and billions and billions of dollars, our money, overseas to other countries? Does that make any sense to you whatsoever? Congress gave themselves a 21% raise. And yet my taxes went up again this year. We don't question it. We don't push back against it. We don't form a revolution or rebel against it. We simply go along to get along. And when challenged, we just shrug our shoulders and move on. Why? Because we don't want to dwell on the fact that for all of the scientific and technological innovation we have enjoyed the last hundred years, it's brought us less and less joy, less and less satisfaction about our lives. And worse yet, for our communities and our homes, less and less satisfaction with other people. And so we dwell on these facts and we don't like what they reveal about us. That Our life lacks meaning, we lack an identity, and we suffer from acute pain, psychological, emotional, and spiritual pain, all day, every day. But we are impotent to do anything about it. There is no app, there's no device, there's no drug that can give your life meaning. Because that role, traditionally, was filled by myth. And I've talked about it on the show before, but I'll, I'll review. When I say myth, I don't mean fairy tale. That's a modern invention to diminish and dismiss mythology as nothing more than children's stories. That is not the pre-modern understanding of myth. Myth, in a pre-modern understanding, is how do you explain something that is unexplainable in language, using analogies and metaphors that a human being can understand. Myth is trying to explain the big truths with simple word pictures. So think of it this way. When I say myth, when Jung and Nietzsche say myth, what we mean is a bridge between what we're thinking and the outside world. And myth connects the two. It connects the internal, what we're thinking and what we're feeling, with the external, reality and what's happening. So when pre-modern people told stories about God or heroes, they weren't just little morality plays. They were intended to, yes, inculcate morality, a sense of this is right and this is wrong, this is good, this is evil, but also then to improve and better society as a whole, to explain these big picture questions in such a way that we can actually put them into practice in our lives. And those myths then gave people's lives meaning. It gave them a sense of identity. This is my clan. This is my tribe. This is who I am as a man. This is who I am as a woman. 
This is my relationship to the forest and the animals. This is my relationship to my creator. This is my relationship to my neighbor. That's the part that myth played for pre-modern man. And modern man took that, threw it in the garbage, and replaced it with technology and science, with pharmaceutical drugs and devices and mathematical equations and apps. I was talking with a friend the other day that he had downloaded a meditation app, but it wasn't working for him. And I said, well, we're, we're actually standing in the gym right now. Let's meditate right now. And he said, well, I got to get to class. And I said, that's what I mean. He's like, what are you talking about? I said, you know, you know, meditation is more than just sitting in the lotus position in a dark, quiet room with your eyes closed, trying to not think about thinking. Meditation is whatever puts you in a flow state. It puts you in a place where time no longer matters, where you're no longer aware of yourself in relation to time and space. All you're aware of is what's happening right in that moment. You are fully physically, mentally, and spiritually present. Flow state. That's meditation. And my meditation is jujitsu. My meditation is Muay Thai sparring. That's when I'm in flow state. That's when I'm meditating. That's when my mind is free and clear. So don't think so monolithically and narrowly about meditation, I said. Expand the way that you think. Dig down into the root. What is meditation, broadly speaking? And then look around you and ask yourself, does sitting in the lotus position with my eyes closed in a darkened room, thinking about not thinking help? No. What does? What brings you to that flow state, that state of non-thinking, of non-being? It's jujitsu for him. And just by that short conversation, I changed his entire perspective on meditation. You don't need an app to teach you how to meditate. The app is too narrow. The app controls you, your thinking and your behavior. Because the app says, you have to do it this way. And we will help you do it because our app is good at it. No. Figure out how you achieve flow state and that is your meditative process. That's your meditation. Whether it be kayaking, hiking, jujitsu, sitting in the lotus position with your eyes closed, whatever it might be, prayer. Don't be so narrow. Broaden your perspective of what it means to, in this case, meditate. But also then broaden your understanding of myth, that it's not a fairy tale. It's not stories for kids. It's how we bridge the space between what we're thinking and feeling and the external world of life and the universe and everything. So Nietzsche and Jung then, as an example, the decline of Christianity in the West, especially beginning with modernity and the Industrial Revolution, it brought the West into a period of mythlessness where it remains stuck today. Because Christianity also gave us, especially in the West, a lot of myth, a lot of explanation of life, the universe, and everything. Identity, meaning, purpose, morality, a connection between the internal and the external world. And as a consequence then, again, in the West, in the present tense, this lack of myth, regardless of how advanced we become technologically or scientifically, the lack of myth makes it that much more difficult for us to confront who we are 
to address our ego, which is really that part of our mind that rejects objective reality. We don't have identities. They're assigned to us by other people. And that's not always good. We struggle to find meaning in our lives. And we usually rely on other people to tell us what the meaning of our life is. We struggle to find a place to belong and a group to belong to. We struggle to establish strong relationships with people. Notice all of these things have to do with a lack of foundation. There's no bridge for us to cross. There's nowhere for us to stand with other people and have conversations about the big picture. And so then it becomes harder and harder for us to confront our psychological hang-ups, our emotional weaknesses and vulnerabilities, our spiritual poverty. And therefore we suffer. We suffer a great deal from angst. We struggle more and more and we seek more and more varied ways of compensating, of treating, anesthetizing, that feeling that we are simply floating through space. No identity, no meaning. The past doesn't matter, it's gone. The future doesn't matter. It's just going to be more pain and suffering. It's just going to be more struggle. And as I discussed in the last episode, Jung says what replaces this is a hunger for power, a hunger to control your environment, to try and grab something for yourself before it's too late. Because you have no moral foundation. There is no good society. It's just chaos. It's just a whole bunch of atomized people running back and forth, screaming, trying to find something that they can get a hold of that says, there, you were here. You did something. This is your legacy. But it's never enough. So Jung writes in um, Memories, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. Carl Jung writes in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, among the so-called neurotics of our day, there are a good many who in other ages would not have been neurotic, that is, divided against themselves. If they had lived in a period in which man was still linked by myth with the world of the ancestors, they would have been spared this division within themselves. I go back to the example of pre-modern mythology and how Hollywood is attacking it right now attempting to deconstruct and destroy it. So let's take a, a current example. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Amazon is making a series out of The Lord of the Rings. But they have retconned it. They have gender swapped. They have race swapped. They have gutted Tolkien's narrative to fit the message. But what they're either consciously or unconsciously doing, because Tolkien got all of his information for the Lord of the Rings from Beowulf, Sigurd, Sigmund, early Anglo-Saxon, Nordic mythology. He drew on all of that for his stories. I mean, Tolkien, in my opinion, and I love Tolkien, I love The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. These are foundational texts for me as a child, to this day even. Tolkien is one of the most famous plagiarists in Western history, because if you go back and read Beowulf or you read about um, Sigmund and Fafnir or um, the Nibelungs rings and, and so forth, the Volsung, 
Tolkien just took that stuff and then just renamed the characters. He was a genius at this. And as an aside, if you ever get a chance to listen to Tolkien's lectures on Beowulf and you're interested in that stuff, it's there, there's nothing better. To this day, there's still nothing better than those lectures. They're fantastic. So what have they done? Well, Hollywood accuses Tolkien of being a racist. They accuse Tolkien of not actually being Christian, that the Lord of the Rings isn't using Christian mythology and Christian symbols. They attack the whiteness of it. They attack the the gender of most of the main characters. Why do they do this? Because they're suffering from a neuroses. Why? Because they do not want to be linked, linked to the world of their ancestors. So they are divided within themselves today, and they seek to divide us within ourselves, to throw us into confusion and chaos within ourselves, so that then they can take that confusion and chaos, manipulate us, in the attempt to create new mythologies. However, the problem therein, in my opinion, the problem is your new mythology is simply a bastardized version of the old mythologies. And because these people are nihilists, they believe in nothing. They have no moral compass other than the message. They have no purpose or goal other than serving the message. They have no ulterior motive other than serve the message. And anything and anyone, past, present, or future, who gets in their way is a villain. They see themselves as the heroes we all need. But they're not heroic because they're not moral. They have no virtues. They're mentally ill. They're neurotic. They're divided within themselves. And so what do we see in our society then as a consequence? Our culture is divided. We are divided, so therefore our culture is divided. How did we get here? By attacking these myths, by destroying these myths. So our ancestors, our pre-modern ancestors, they didn't have these neuroses. They didn't suffer from these. They didn't struggle with these things. Why? Because they had a connection to life, the universe, and everything through myth, through these explanations of these big picture topics. So how do we then in the present tense use this, get this back, reject modernity in the area of myth? How do we use myth again? How do we reconfirm those ancient myths, those pre-modern myths, in order to help us in the present tense with our psychological and spiritual burdens. Well, what is a myth? It's an attempt to explain the world through fictional stories, which, in my experience, aren't so fictional. Why? Because they take things that happen in the real world, that happen to real people, and then they fictionalize it so that it applies to everyone equally. When I read Beowulf, I'm not a 9th century Anglo-Saxon warrior king. And yet when I read it, it's teaching me something. It's inspiring me. It's evoking something from me, which is a sense of right and wrong, good and evil, fight the dragon, stand up for the village, defend your neighbor, be a good man, be a strong man, be a leader. 
Stand for justice and righteousness. Be kind and charitable, but be firm and resolute. All things that are missing in our culture today. These aren't taught in our schools. These aren't portrayed for us on the screen. We don't see this being exemplified by our leaders. And so we go back and we readdress and we reconfirm these pre-modern myths in order to explain the workings of the natural world today, to explain the origin of our culture today. How did we get here? Myths will help us understand that. It will explain that to us. So I don't believe we've moved beyond our need for myth. Otherwise, Hollywood wouldn't be attacking these pre-modern myths month after month, year after year. And they wouldn't be so vocal and violent about it. Science and technology cannot answer the deeper questions that we have. It cannot give us psychological relief. It cannot feed our soul because science and technology do not produce the fruit that is necessary to replenish us psychologically and spiritually. The scientific method, for example, deals with cause and effect. It helps us to understand why a tree grows why I walk, why a baby cries when it's hungry. But science can't explain why I love my wife. Science can't explain why I was drawn to mixed martial arts. Science can't explain why I have such a strong sense of justice. It can try by applying the scientific method by applying means of technology to the question. But these are metaphysical questions. These aren't material questions. These are questions that have to do with the soul. Myths transmit answers about our behavior, our patterns of action, the way that we interface and experience the world. They promote psychological development and well-being because they answer the question of what's the meaning of life. Myths embody wisdom. They translate the wisdom of the past into the present tense. Wisdom of generations past given to the next generation through story that's then passed on to the next generation through the same stories. They offer us solutions to our shared problems, dilemmas, and challenges. They unite us as cultures under a shared worldview and vision of what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. And without myth, we lose all of that. And without myth, we have lost all of that. By attempting to make society better, social engineers of the past and the present have actually made us worse, in my opinion. Because when societies lose their myths, then the people that make up that society, they lose the story, which explains their life It explains the goal and purpose of life. It explains the meaning of life. And we need that story. We need those myths because they explain the meaning and goal and purpose of our life. Our well-being is tied to myth. And with the myth, identity, meaning, purpose, goal, all explained. We have a foundation that we can all stand on together. It can bear the weight of all of us. And without the help of myth, The foundation crumbles and we fall endlessly through space in an abyss 
that has no bottom. So we emphasize certain past events. We deny other past events. We fabricate certain elements of our life. Why? To make sense of who we are in the present tense and where we're going. But when we are ringed on all sides with myth, that's Nietzsche, when we are ringed about with myth on all sides, then the process of constructing the meaning of our life, the story of our life and our life together, this promotes our development psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually. It's like steroids for us. So, the symbol, which is at the, the heart of any myth, is the symbolism. What does this myth represent? What is it pointing us to? What greater truths are we being directed to through this myth and through the symbols that are used in these myths? Because it's the symbols of the myth that are communicated to us through words that give us the protection we need to grow as human beings. At least that's what Nietzsche thought. Those symbols, those images, they point us to something, a mystery. That's why, again, Christianity is such a rich source, because it's a rich source of symbols. It's the richest source of symbols in the West. Think of the cross of Christ. Even if you're not a Christian, the cross of Christ as a symbol carries a ton of meaning behind it, both positive and negative. But it is loaded with meaning. Just that symbol is loaded with meaning. It calls us forward into the future. It lays out our goals for us by explaining the past and where we come from. So as Carl Jung writes in Man and His Symbols, it is the role of religious symbols to give a meaning to the life of man. That's the purpose of religious symbols. Give a meaning to the life of man. Which on the other hand, as an aside, is why the state uses religious symbolism to manipulate and control us. Because the state, the operators, they understand this. They know the role religious symbol plays in our lives, going all the way back to ancient, ancient times. They know that religious symbols give us a sense of meaning for our lives. So they hijack religious symbolism, and they leverage it against us, like the cult of COVID, the face covering, the baptism, which is the, the vaccine, the, the clot shot. The social distancing shows our piety. The word of Fauci is the word of God. It is divinity. It's a cult. How did it become a cult so quickly? The state used religious symbols and religious language. Governors went into churches and worked with evangelical leaders as an example. So that in church, the state infiltrated the pulpit and used the religious symbols of those churches to manipulate and control those people. Because they understand religious symbols give a meaning to the life of man. So the, what happens then? These religious symbols, they endow our life with a perspective and a goal that goes far beyond our limited existence. It gives us ample space for the unfolding of personality and permits us a full life as complete people. So then our plight is infinitely more satisfactory 
than that of a man in our own civilization who knows that he is and will remain nothing more than an underdog with no inner meaning to his life. Everyone's a victim, no one's a hero. Take away religious symbol. Take away the meaning of a person's life. And what are you left with? A person who can only see him or herself as the underdog with no inner meaning to their life. The abandonment of myth, the vilification, the destruction of myth in modernity has in part been a reaction against symbolism, against the symbol and what it represents, these greater truths. Why should we believe in something, objectively speaking, that undercuts the lens of our enlightened scientific worldview? Myth has no basis in reality for moderns. The only thing that's real is science and technology. But here's the thing. The role of symbolism, the role of the symbol, is not to help us manipulate or understand the world around us. The role of the symbol is to help us develop psychologically and spiritually so that we can achieve our tasks, we can succeed in our mission, irrespective of whether it is any, has any external true value. In the sense of, does it really apply one-to-one to the external world? Does this myth help explain why these woods are here and what lives in those woods that I have to go in there and confront? No. It simply explains there's something in the woods. It's monstrous and it's preying upon your flocks. And if you don't go and confront it, you're going to suffer and possibly be killed by it. The cause and effect that comes with myth is there's good and there's evil. And good people confront evil and exterminate it for the good of all. So yes, maybe the, the myth explains that the reason the forest is here is because God created it and he planted it and it grew here. And so it won't explain why there's sap coming out of the trees. It won't explain why only certain trees grow in this part of the world. It won't explain the ecosystem of the monster you're about to go confront. But what it does is it gives you psychologically and spiritually a purpose to go into the woods and confront the monster. So I'll ask you, which which is more important, do you think, for yourself? The cause and effect, the scientific method applied to the world, or myth, which irrespective of its external truth value, helps us distinguish between what's right and wrong, good and evil. Is it important? Is it vitally important to our survival to know why maple trees can be used to make maple syrup? Is it necessary to know what the mitochondria does within the cell? Maybe, maybe not. I'm just asking the question. Is it more important to know the difference between right and wrong? Is it more important to know your goal and purpose and the meaning of your life and have a sense of time and place? Is it more important to be connected to the past and the generations that came before you so that you understand why you're here and who you are and what you're supposed to do? Because Jung, in Symbols of Transformation, says, considered from the standpoint of realism, 
The symbol is not, of course, an external truth, but it is psychologically true because it was and is the bridge to all that is best in humanity. There we go. From the standpoint of what's real, objectively real, the symbol is not one for one an external truth, but it is psychologically true. Spiritually, it is true because it was and is the bridge to all that is best in humanity. So I think it's an interesting thought experiment. If you could, if you had to choose, let's say, again, gun pointed at your head, you had to choose. Scientific method or pre-modern myth. Which one would you choose? If you could only choose one, which one would you choose and why? I wrestle with it all the time nowadays. Sometimes I wish I was a pre-modern and I didn't have an iPhone and I didn't have a podcast and I wasn't connected to everybody in the world and I wasn't addicted to social media. But then there's other days when I connect with people via social media and I'm bettered by the exchange. I'm encouraged by the people I meet on social media who are kind and giving and charitable toward me. I don't have an answer. I'm just asking the question. But I think it's something that we don't talk about enough. We complain about it one way or the other, but we don't talk about it. We're not thoughtful. We don't have dialogue about it in a way that I think would be meaningful for everybody. To say, okay, on the one side, science and, and technology. On the other side, pre-modern myth. Go. Let's have a conversation. But again, to go back to the myth and it being a bridge to all that is best in humanity, not all myths are created equal, of course. Some myths reflect the struggle of men and women during different times and places. And those help us then confront the struggles that we face in the here and now. For example, as a Christian, the Bible gives me a whole library of symbols, a whole library of mythology that I can draw upon that gives me an identity, gives my life meaning, a goal and a purpose. I know who came before me. I know where I'm going. I know who I am in the present tense. But Nietzsche, that pastor's kid, he wasn't too hot about Christianity and especially Christian myth. He thought that Christianity was a life-denying mythology in contrast to what he favored, which were the tragic myths of ancient Greece. Jung, on the other hand, who was a Christian, broadly speaking, was less critical of Christianity because he understood, regardless of how he felt about the Roman Catholic Church or his own faith and piety, that Christianity is one of a multitude of religious myths which have great individual value. As he writes in Symbols of Transformation, the religious myth is one of man's greatest and most significant achievements, giving him the security and inner strength not to be crushed by the monstrousness of the universe. What do you do without when you remove religious myth? You stand at the edge of the abyss, and the abyss stares back into you. And what do you see? Nothing pretty, nothing handsome. Nothing that you want to stay and stare at any longer than you have to. Why? Because it's nothingness. And that nothingness surrounds you on every side. It was there before you were born. It will be there after you die. 
and it's there now just waiting to devour you. Take away myth, specifically religious myth, and you're left with the abyss. Cold, unfeeling, uncaring, endlessly hungering for you. And yet, both Nietzsche and Jung understood that regardless of how they felt about Christian mythology, it was not possible to recapture that. That after modernity, after the Industrial Revolution, especially in the 20th century for Jung, a return to the Christian mythos was impossible. In his biography, his autobiography, sorry, which I've already cited, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, he writes this, In what myth does a man live nowadays? In the Christian myth? The answer might be, do you live in it? I ask myself. To be honest, the answer was no. For me, it is not what I live by. Well then, do we no longer have any myth? No. Evidently, we no longer have any myth. But then, what is your myth? The myth in which you do live. At this point, the dialogue with myself became uncomfortable, and I stopped thinking. I had reached a dead end. Take away myth and what's left? A dead end. Literally, by the way. A dead end for you, and me, and everyone. There is no heaven and hell. There is no purpose for why you're here. There is no goal to your life. Everything is a dead end once you strip your life of myth. Once you determine that myth is no longer relevant or vital to your life, and that is replaced with science and technology, you've reached a dead end. That's why suicide rates have climbed 400% in the last two years. That's why so many people in this country abuse medication and illegal drugs. It's why it is popular to drink yourself into a stupor night after night to cope with the pain and the angst of your existence. And that's why we are, in the West anyways, going over the edge of the precipice now. Because without a myth to help us figure out the meaning of life, without those stories that bind and unite us as a culture in which we live, according to Nietzsche and Jung anyways, what do we latch on to? Well, we latch on to political ideologies, of course, specifically collectivist political ideologies, communism, Marxism, that kind of stuff. Why? Because these ideologies have their own sets of symbols and rituals specifically religious symbols and rituals, which allow those who feel that they are all alone in the world, in the universe, that their life has no meaning. It allows them to feel that they're contributing to something bigger than themselves, that they're part of something. Now they have a goal and a purpose. Now they have a future. But what happens when you join the cult of the state? What happens when you worship at the altar of the state, no matter what form it takes? Well, you worship a false god. Because these collectivist political ideologies, they can relieve its followers of the burdens of their individual existence, but it can't replace pre-modern myths. Because statism, political, ideological statism, it does not promote the healthy development of the personality. It doesn't care about the individual. 
It only cares about the mass. So it doesn't offer one a moral education that will improve the health and well-being of the individual. Instead, it diminishes the value of the individual in favor of the collective. We talked about this in the last episode. Jung addresses this. But then, to make it even worse than that, as if there's anything worse than just having your individual existence blotted out for the sake of the whole, the collective, the worship of the state, of this kind of collectivist political ideology, which we see obviously being indoctrinated in our compulsory educational curriculums, at colleges, in the media, in culture, everywhere you look in the United States today, collectivist political ideology and statism is everywhere. The worship of false gods is everywhere today. The worship of the state does not produce cultural unity as we have experienced the last two years. Instead, what does it breed? When you worship the state as a god, when you look to the state for symbols, for myths that give your life a sense of meaning and identity and goal and purpose, what does that produce? What fruit does that produce? Well, we know because we've witnessed it. Division, conflict, and death. As Jung writes in his lectures on Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra, Jung writes, the state is merely the modern pretense, a shield, a make-belief, a concept. The state's not real. The state, it's an abstract concept. It's a shield, it's make-believe. In reality, he writes, the ancient war god holds the sacrificial knife, for it is in war that the sheep are sacrificed. So instead of human representatives or a personal divine being, we now have the dark gods of the state. The old gods are coming to life again in a time when they should have been superseded long ago and nobody can see it. All of the dark gods that Yahweh destroyed on behalf of his people Israel have come to life again. All of the gods, the false gods, the death gods that Jesus destroyed at Calvary on Good Friday have come to life again like zombies that won't die. And yet nobody can see it because we have no mythology, we have no symbols. And those that we do have have been co-opted by the state, by Hollywood and pop culture to blind us to what's happening right in front of our eyes every day. So collectivist political ideologies, Marxism, collectivism, communism, they're inadequate. They're destructive. They're not an, a replacement for pre-modern myth. All they do is drive us into a state of nihilism, passive, state-funded nihilism. And so what do we do? Well, we can lead a wasted life by worshiping at the altar of the dark gods of the state, or we can embrace and reconfirm pre-modern myth into which we were born. That's our birthright. Those myths are ours. Our ancestors, our spiritual fathers and mothers passed those myths down generation after generation. And we, the few of us who are left, we have inherited those myths. 
And so we are the curators of those pre-modern myths. Again, that's why I started this podcast in the first place. Because I saw it happening and I saw that nobody wanted to talk about it. So for my sake, for my sanity, for the sake of my wife, who was probably tired of me talking about it endlessly, for the sake of my children, for all of you who think that you're the only one out there that thinks this way and struggles with this, that's why I started this podcast. Because we do not have to endure a meaningless existence. That's a choice. If we simply embrace myth again, we'll find our foundation. We'll recover our foundation. We'll rediscover the power of myth and symbol. We'll see how it starts to form a moral foundation for us and how we can start to have common conversations with each other and debates about good and evil, right and wrong. Because now we have a sense of goal and purpose, which is we've got to go in the woods and we've got to confront the monster that's killing our sheep. So Nietzsche in The World of Power writes, it is a measure of the degree of strength of will to what extent one can do without meaning in things, to what extent one can endure to live in a meaningless world because one organizes a small portion of it oneself. It is a measure of the degree of strength of will to what extent one can do without meaning in things, to what extent one can endure to live in a meaningless world because one organizes a small portion of it oneself. In my little portion of the world, I choose to bring back myth. Surrounded as I am on all sides by meaninglessness, by nihilists, by those who worship the state, I choose to bring back the myths. I choose to embrace those myths. And I hope you do too. I think you'll be very surprised by what happens as a consequence, the kind of fruit that those myths start to produce in your life. Our age, our generation is a mythless generation. And as a consequence, it's an age without heroes. But the hero, especially the mythological hero, the pre-modern mythological hero, is the one who displays the strength of will to which Nietzsche is alluding in, his, in the quote I read. When I read Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield and I read about Thermopylae and Leonidas and the 300, it inspires me. It inspires me to be a better man for my children, a better man for my wife, a better man for my community. Why? Because regardless of the truth of that event, the tale, the myth of that event, and what that represents, what it symbolizes to say, I'm a free man, and I will bow the knee to no false god. That is powerful, for me anyways. So rather than being overcome by both the inner chaos that is, you know, rolling and pitching inside of me, and rather than become over and be overcome by the outer chaos that's happening all around me that plagues our society today, I choose to reconnect to these effective myths, to these heroes who face up to this kind of chaos 
and discover their own solutions, his or her solutions, to the burden of their time and our time. Because at root, regardless of any kind of technological innovation, the thoughts that we have, the things that we imagine, our daydreams, our hopes, our fears, our anxieties, they're always the same. They've always been the same. Always. We can dress them up and pretend like we're more progressed, we're more evolved, we're more advanced than those primitive pre-moderns. We're not. We're really not. If you do a, a, a thorough study of history, the pre-moderns in many ways were far more advanced in their thinking than we are. They were far more advanced in their worldview than we are today because they had a much broader view of reality than we do today. So how do we avoid being overcome by inner and outer chaos? Get the myth. So those who take this challenge on then, we return to the world of myth. And we won't allow ourselves to be distracted or diverted by those voices that say, why do you care about those fairy tales? Why do you fill your mind with such worthless stories? Live in the now. Embrace reality. And my answer to them is, that's exactly what I'm doing. You're the one who's living in unreality. You're the one who is in flight from reality. You're the one who worships a false god. You're the one who lives in illusion. That's why your life is meaningless. That's why you don't have a sense of identity or purpose. So to quote Jung in The Symbolic Life then, there's only one who has risked the fight with the dragon and is not overcome by it. Hmm. And it's this one. Only one who has risked the fight with the dragon and is not overcome by the dragon wins the hoard, the treasure hard to attain. He alone, the one who fights the dragon, who risks everything to fight the dragon, he alone has a genuine claim to self-confidence because he has faced the dark ground of his self and therefore he, thereby he has gained himself. This experience gives some faith and trust in the ability of the self to sustain him because everything that menaced him from inside, he has now made his own. He has acquired the right to believe that he will be able to overcome all future threats by the same means. He has arrived at an inner certainty which makes him capable of self-reliance. That's why they must destroy myth. That's why they have to hijack those pre-modern symbols, especially those religious symbols. They cannot allow us to arrive at any inner certainty. They must not allow us to be capable of self-reliance. We must all become a part of the collective. We must all become a zero or a one. We must all be wide open to whatever the dark gods of the state tell us to think, to say, and to do. But those of us who have risked everything to go and fight with that dragon, those of us who have walked away, who have won the hoard, the treasure hard to attain, we have that self-confidence that the world does not know and cannot understand because we faced ourselves. 
the dragon that we first confronted was our self. The monster that we fought against was our self. And having won that battle, we then went out into the world. And when we encountered other dragons, other monsters, what did we do? Because we had faith, because we had trust, they could not menace us anymore. And therefore, we would not be defeated by those monsters because we had the inner certainty and the self-reliance that we are capable of fighting with the dragon. And not just to fight, but to fight and to win and to gain the treasure. And that is what those who seek to destroy myth fear most. We are those people that they fear the most because we know who we are. We know where we've been. We know where we are going. We know who we are right now. And we cannot be diverted and we cannot be distracted by these false myths and symbols that are being constructed for us today. But the only way that I know of to stay on that path is to embrace pre-modern myth and pre-modern symbols. And to recognize that when we are taught in school or we are told that anything old is bad and anything new is good, that's a lie. It's a bald-faced lie, and it's designed to prevent us from ever looking to the past, from ever listening to the voices of those who came before us, who may not have had a microscope or a telescope, who may not have had a car or an airplane, who may not have had an automatic weapon or a high-speed vehicle. But they had something much more valuable than any of those things. They had myth. They had answers to the questions that we all ask in every generation. Why am I here? What is the purpose and meaning of my life? What's out there beyond the stars? What's in here beyond what people can see. Myth gives us the answers to all of those questions. They give us a moral foundation, yes. They improve society, yes. But they give us self-confidence and they give us self-reliance. They make us better people and they connect us to a life and a world and a universe that's far bigger and more amazing and remarkable than anything that we could have possibly imagined. And so if we don't reconfirm myth, if we don't recapture those pre-modern myths, we will be swept away. We will be swallowed by the abyss. We will be burned alive by the dragon, by the dark gods of the state. We will be sacrificed as sheep to be slaughtered by the old war gods. Or we can simply reject modernity in this aspect and say to the dark gods of the state, I have a God and he already conquered you once and he's going to do it again. And he'll do it for me to protect me from you, you false gods. So I will not bow and worship at your altar. I will not listen to your high priests and prophets. I will not fall victim to your 
empty symbols because I know who I am because I know where I came from and I know where I'm going and you are just trying to get in my way and God willing along the way we share this conversation we share these texts we share these myths with others and they inflame and inspire them to want to do well what we're doing which is simply to say I want that. I want that sense of self-confidence and self-reliance. I want that sense of belonging. I want meaning and identity. I want a sense of purpose and goal for my life. I want to understand that there's more to life, the universe, and everything than what science and technology can provide for me. I want more. And we don't have to reject science and technology. We don't have to get rid of it. We don't have to go live in a cave. But we simply recognize they're not the answer or the solution to the deeper conversation that we're having, the psychological questions and the spiritual questions that come up. Science and technology can't answer those. Only myth can do that. So I'll wrap it up there. I think I mentally uh, turned myself inside out reading Nietzsche and Jung and trying to interpret it for you today. I hope I did a good job. I, I hope I was clear and concise. I hope that was understandable. Um, if not, let me know. I'll try and do better. This was my first attempt to, to swallow Nietzsche and Jung whole in one sitting. Again, either willful naivety or arrogance on my part or something in between. But I just really love both of them and the way that they lay this out. And I wanted to share that with you. And hopefully that will inspire you to, to go and, and read them for yourself and draw your own conclusions. So that being said, then thank you as always for listening this long in the podcast. Thank you for all you do to support me in this podcast. And we'll talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace.